Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and today we are going to revisit Boko Haram. We haven't done a show for a while on Boko Haram and I've been wanting to and we have a fantastic guest today who has been on the show in the past a couple of years ago so I'm very happy to welcome Jacob Zen back to the show. So first of all Jacob thank you for coming back on the Loopcast. Thank you very much. It's absolutely a pleasure to contribute to this podcast on Boko Haram, as well as to be a regular listener of your podcast. Ah, thank you. And for our listeners, Jacob was a competent leader under the European Union's technical assistance to Nigeria's evolving security challenges from 2014 to May of 2016. He is also a fellow on Africa and Euro-Asian Affairs at the Jamestown Foundation in Washington, D.C., and he's the author of more than 200 reports and articles on Nigeria, Central Asia, and Southeast Asia. He also consults for clients who need understanding of micro-level details and leadership, ideology, strategic communications, and operational trends of violent non-state actors and particularly those on the geopolitical periphery and of the Middle East, as well as macro level, which tends to focus on, once again, the violent non-state actors in the 21st century. He also is co-teaching a graduate level course with David Gardenstein-Ross on violent non-state actors, and those who listen to the Loopcast know that we've had David on the show a lot. Um, and he is doing this as an adjunct pr- assistant professor in Georgetown University's Security Studies program. And last but not least, Zen conducts research in more than 10 languages. Also, um, just for our listeners, Jacob and David Gardenstein Ross have an article coming out on, in War on the Rocks potentially this week. We're still waiting for the actual date, but do look for that, and that will be on Boko Haram as well, so it will fill in with this show topic. Um, So yes, look for that. So why don't we start off with, um, you know, what has been going on with Boko Haram? We've seen a lot of changes, a lot of interesting developments. So Jacob, why don't you give our listeners a mini intro into some of the current important events that have happened recently? Uh, the most important event in terms of studying BH, which is the acronym for Boko Haram, as a violent non-state actor right now, is that the leadership rift that has been under wraps for a few years now is resurfacing in a very public way. And for the first time, the leader and face of Boko Haram since 2010, Abu Bakr Shakao, who's very bombastic and boisterous, and who is the one who pledged allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, thus making BH the West Africa province of Islamic State, he has now been dropped from the position of the leader, or Wali, of West Africa province, and now the son of the founder of Boko Haram, whose name is Abu Musab al-Barnawi, or actually Habib Yusuf, uh, but he goes by Abu Musab al-Barnawi, he's now the new leader. And what's really interesting is that the new leader of the West Africa province of the Islamic State, Abu Musab al-Barnawi, his ideology, his history, even his emotional attachments are much closer to al-Qaeda than Islamic State. Whereas Shakao, who was dropped, his ideology and his tactics are much closer to Islamic State than Abu Musab al-Barnawi. So there's a contradiction there. And the analytical mind needs to try to explain what that contradiction is about. 
Uh, it's also notable that right after being dropped, Shikao put out a video showing about 50 of the Chibok schoolgirls, and that's the first time that they've been publicly shown by Boko Haram, except for a leak a few months ago of about 15 of the girls uh, since April 2014 when they were taken. So that means that the Chibok girls and the issue of no- negotiation for them is also resurfacing. Now, uh, finally, for mm, diplomats, uh, people on the ground in Nigeria, they're, you know, Nigerian security forces, they're probably most concerned with how does all this leadership debate and the leadership rift actually affect things on the ground that mean life or death for people. And that's also one of the important things for the analysts to do, to explain how are these very macro level issues affecting things on the micro level. And you mentioned this this new wali or governor, and I think it was August 3rd, the Islamic State, or as we like to acronym them, IS, announced Habibi Yusuf's new position, I guess we could call it that. And as you just alluded to, his connection is probably more closely aligned with al-Qaeda. So why has he been put in place as the new governor and... Why does IS go about this change, potentially knowing that maybe this is not the man that's going to stay affiliated with them? I think the answer to the contradiction is that IS was put in a situation where it didn't have much of a choice but to accept Habib Yusuf, a.k.a. Abu Musab al-Barnawi, as the new leader. Because uh, one thing that we can discern about the IS to BH relationship is that there wasn't all that much logistics between them in terms of providing weaponry or money. It happened, but not that much. And part of that is because IS is struggling in Libya, and Libya has not become this major hub for resourcing Africa like IS wanted. Now, that's relevant because one thing IS has done is resourced BH media in a very prominent way. BH is completely integrated into the media structure. But Abu Musab al-Barnawi is the one who has controlled that complete media connection. And he's actually probably controlled the behind-the-scenes reporting connection about strategy and other things that they discuss. And it's been through Abu Musab al-Barnawi that Shikau, who has been dropped, was able to communicate with al-Baghdadi's people. And the way I interpret what's happening based on what Shikau said and what Abu Musab al-Barnawi's likely intentions are is that Abu Musab al-Barnawi basically decided to cut Shikau's contacts off Shikau wasn't able to communicate with IS. IS wasn't able to communicate with Shikau, even though he was the Wali. And Abu Musa al-Barnawi probably convinced IS that BH's failures on the battlefield over the past year are the fault of bad decision-making by Shikau and selfish decision-making, like hoarding weapons, losing in conventional battles, losing support of BH fighters, uh, not being rational. And as IS couldn't even reach Shikau and Shikau couldn't reach IS, they basically took Abu Musa al-Barnawi's arguments and said, okay, you're the new leader now. Even though I think they likely, they should likely suspect that he is leaning towards Al-Qaeda. And IS has already seen people from Al-Qaeda or who lean toward Al-Qaeda disrupt other provinces of theirs, like in Yemen and Afghanistan. And this, this could be happening again. So considering that IS has pretty much taken Bernawi's word as it is, what does that say for IS's hold in 
Nigeria, are they too taxed on the home front to really care what's happening in Nigeria and its borders? Well, you know, if West Africa province is to fall apart and say Chacao is no longer in contact with them and Abu Musa al-Barnawi runs to AQ because IS doesn't recognize him, then IS has lost its West Africa province. It would be a major image damage to IS at a time when it's already struggling. So IS sort of like needs to listen to Abu Musa al-Barnawi to, to save this province and likely Abu Musa al-Barnawi has negotiating power in, in that respect. IS can't just be seen as not only losing Syria, Iraq, and Libya, but then if it loses West Africa, Afghanistan, Yemen, then basically its project is at best a virtual caliphate. But what ISIS does have, even despite its losing territory right now, is that the immediate call to the caliphate still has a lot of ideological pull over both Shikau and Abu Musa al-Barnawi. So even though I mention all these leanings of Abu Musa al-Barnawi to al-Qaeda, he still is likely, just like his father was, who was the founder, compelled to this narrative and notion of the caliphate that only ISIS can give him today, and that al-Qaeda is much more gradual about. So it shows that ISIS still has some magnetic attraction to these groups via the call to the caliphate, um, but it's just a little bit tenuous. And looking at this, where has Shikau gone and why has he been ousted? So what are the underlying factors of his disappearing as the wali of Boko Haram in the Islamic State's eyes? In terms of location, the Nigerian army seems to strongly believe he's in Sambisa Forest. And based on his recent video appearance, which occurred after he was dropped, he looks like he's in the Sambisa Forest, which is a northeastern Nigeria's uh, Borno state. And uh, I think he was dropped because Abu Musa al-Barnawi basically cut him off. And he's complaining in his videos, actually, or his audio rather, saying that IS has been manipulated by Abu Musa al-Barnawi. Al-Baghdadi is not responding to my requests for clarifications on Islamic religious matters in which Shakao accuses Abu Musa al-Barnawi of various forms of apostasy. And so, basically, Shikha was dropped because he had no connection to the caliphate, and those who had connections pushed him away, possibly because they uh, have these intentions to later move the AQ and to destroy the West Africa province project, or because they simply don't like Shikha because they hold a different ideology to Shikha. So, basically, Shikha actually reverted to being the original Boko Haram group. He went back to the original name, which is Jamatu Ahlesuna Lidawati Wal Jihad, which we can acronym make as an acronym to JAS, Jamatakhlesuna. And he's now the leader of his own group again. He's free to do whatever he wants. And that's why he was able to release the Chibuk video recently, because there was no IS or no AQ or nobody to tell him you can't show these girls on video because it doesn't fit with our media program or whatnot. So he's sort of unrestrained again. And that's a little risky because before he was in IS, he was very comfortable killing anyone. After he joined IS, I think he was still comfortable killing anyone, but he had to do it according to at least a project. Now he's back on his own. He can be freestyle. He's perhaps under-resourced, which is why he's negotiating for the Chibok schoolgirls to maybe get some prisoners back, get some money. But uh, he's basically commanding his own show right now, and uh, we'll actually see if he's still commanding it, because just this week the Nigerian army reported that they may have killed him in an airstrike. He has, however, survived about four or five times after being declared dead, sort of like Bel Mukhtar and some other guys out there. So I'll take it that he's still alive. But 
but we'll see. And one of the claims that we're hearing about Chikawa and IS and, and the break is that he had too many attacks on the Muslim community, which I kind of find funny considering IS's own attacks on the Muslim community in the other provinces and regions that has a presence. Why do you think they're using this and making this a difference when it comes to Chicago versus their own actions? What's actually interesting about that is that the most public critique of Chicago by Abu Musab al-Barnawi, the new leader, actually comes from an ally of Abu Musab al-Barnawi named Mama Noor, but his critique of Shikau was actually a privately recorded audio that was now released on the internet by a sort of leak. So this critique of Shikau is sort of an internal matter, and the reason why IS, or at least the West Africa province, can't air this as propaganda against Shikau is because all of the criticisms against Shikau that the new West Africa province is making are the virtual exact same ones that AQ makes against IS, which is basically telling Shikau or AQ telling IS, you're focusing on the wrong people. You are killing a lot of Muslim civilians because you believe that anyone who doesn't join your jihad is therefore an apostate and therefore worth being killed. Whereas we believe that if you're just casually living your life as a Muslim and you don't join us, you're not necessarily worthy of being killed. If you act actively oppose us and like you join the military or the army, or if you somehow serve the government, or perhaps serve in uh, Western education schools, or work in churches because they view Christians as the enemy, then you can be targeted. Um, so there's this ideological dispute against Shikau, but it's impossible that IS leadership would have deposed him over his ideology because it's basically the same thing as IS. And West Africa province now is only critiquing Shikau below the surface of the propaganda because they know they can't release something through IS media criticizing Shikau because IS will realize that this is like a self-criticism at the end of the day. And, and that's where this contradiction is coming into play because, as I said, the new West Africa province leadership has an AQ ideology but they can't really air it because it would contravene IS. And therefore, I think Chicago got dropped, not because of ideology, but because the new leaders, such as Abu Musab al-Barnawi, have basically sidelined him because of their own personal reasons, which I'm hypothesizing is that he has longer-term AQ inclinations. And by sidelining Chicago, he'll be able to eventually become the leader of West Africa province, which he is, and then he holds the power to actually dissolve West Africa province one day and do whatever he wants with, with uh, the, the, the brand and his fighters, which could be joining AQ in some type of new type of affiliation. And do we see Barnawi using this idea that Chikawa is to talk theory, is the term? Does he promote that idea in media and in messaging? In terms of the pedigree of Al-Barnawi, given that he, his fighters have been in the what he calls the Greater Sahara in the Sahel region, and given that some of his commanders used to be in the faction called Ansaru, which was an AQIM project in Nigeria that opposed Chikau for his excessive tekfirism, it, it, it's highly likely that Abu Musab al-Barnawi holds those views. And Abu Musab al-Barnawi, in a video in early 2015, even while he, while he was allying with Chikau, made it clear that he had an ideology very similar to this Ansaru group. But right now, Abu Musab al-Barnawi 
as I mentioned, is not able to very publicly criticize Shekau on those issues because Abu Musa al-Barnawi himself is part of IS and IS cannot air publicly the criticisms of al-Barnawi against Shekau because it would be too contradictory of IS using those arguments when it's the same ones AQ uses against IS. So that's why this type of debate is all happening under the radar between al-Barnawi's fighters and Shekau and Shekau's fighters, but they, they're not airing it publicly except for this one that has now made it public which makes it clear that they have a whole bunch of uh, disagreements against Shikau, which are the same ones that AQ has against IS. And this is one of the reasons why they want him sidelined, and they feel like they can do a more effective insurgency by essentially following an AQ path, even though they're still West Africa province. It's like a difficult puzzle if you're just looking at it for the first time, but when you're familiar with these characters and these factional relationships, the puzzle of what's actually going on fits. That makes complete sense. So we have Shikau, he's returned back to JAS, J-A-S is the acronym we're going to use, which is Boko Haram's original name, I guess that's the way you could phrase it. And he's no longer the part on part of the African, West African province. So looking at the greater picture, what will this mean for JAS as well as Bernawi's Boko Haram? Well, that's a good question, and I think that, you know, all of them still are aligned with IS. It is possible that IS could try to make a reconciliation happen between all these factions since they're still at least for the short term loyal to IS. And IS's immediate caliphacy is something that they all want. But with IS's caliphate sort of falling apart in Iraq, Syria, Libya, and possibly elsewhere, it seems to me that IS isn't going to have the time to try to reconcile between these groups. Moreover, the North Africans in IS, who had originally helped liaise Abu Musa al-Barnawi to IS, have largely been killed or they're on the run. So they're not really able to help this reconciliation happen. And in theory, Shikau, who used to be a sort of undeclared affiliate of AQIM or AQ more broadly, he could somehow return to AQ, but that's also unlikely given that his ideology and actions have always been not coherent with AQ's platforms. So I see Shikau as remaining in his own faction for a while longer and basically retaining the local support that he's had in parts of Borno State amongst people who share his ideology or who are attracted to his charisma or the broader platform at Boko Haram. But in terms of international terrorism, I see that more the work of what's West Africa province today and I think West Africa province's sustainability with IS is, is in question. Even IS's struggle, struggles and the leadership's historic, emotional, uh, and other ties to AQ. So I could see the West Africa province somehow evolving to some space between IS and AQ, or even fully on with AQ, and then carrying out a much more targeted, regional uh, approach to the insurgency that would go after you know, diplomats, international institutions, possibly kidnappings, and resemble a sort of upgraded approach to what Ansaru did in 2012-2013. That would also make churches in the middle belt of Nigeria, which is the hotspot historically in terms of Muslim-Christian relations, uh, become more of a target. Now, just because Shikau is not as much of an international terrorist, quote-unquote, because he's back to Jax, it doesn't mean that it's any less dangerous. In fact, if he's unrestrained and he's very locally based, he can very much harass local communities and cause a lot of displacement 
at a time when there's already food shortages and uh, disease could spread uh, with all the IDPs, uh, families could get torn apart, um, all these terrible things. And Chicago's men who could be low on resources would actually need to exploit communities in order to gain resources that they're now not getting from AQRIS. So those are sort of the, the worst risk factors. The West Africa province evolves into an upgraded Ansaru in uh, the future, and Chicago is more locally based and wreaking havoc on the local level. An X factor is, however, the foreign fighters of IS from Nigeria, Senegal, and some other West African countries that are now leaving Libya and moving southward. And if West Africa province can wrap them up, then they can use them to carry out attacks throughout West Africa in a way that is unprecedented uh, in history, almost like the way that IS is using its Syria networks to target Europe. We haven't seen this yet from IS in West Africa, but given that AQIM has done some attacks in places like Abidjan, Bamako, and Burkina Faso in the past year or so, IS needs to meet this competition and may be able to use these foreign fighters in these attacks throughout West Africa, maybe in countries like Ghana, Senegal, that haven't historically been targeted by terrorism. I should mention another X factor is also how the new Jebahet al-Nusra, Daesh Fatah Sham, will fare in Syria, as well as the Taliban in Afghanistan. Because if AQ allied affiliates, uh, secret affiliates, start establishing emirates and doing well in the AQ caliphate building project, it'll give more legitimacy to the AQ model over the IS model and would likely hasten the move of someone like Al-Barnawi to AQ as they would become more confident that the AQ model is actually better than this IS model of immediate caliphacy. Why don't you explain for our listeners the idea of having more than one Boko Haram? So right now I'm calculating with our talk that we have two. We have Bernawis and Chikaos. So, are there only two, first of all? This is also interesting about the word Boko Haram. From a strategic communication perspective, it can be useful because it paints Boko Haram as against Western education and most Nigerian people, most Muslim people, the broad swaths are recognize that Western education is consistent with their religious practice and beliefs. And by labeling Boko Haram as Boko Haram, which Boko Haram does believe that Boko is Haram or education is Haram, they're basically you know, casting Boko Haram aside, even though that's not the real name. The negative of using this name for Boko Haram, even from a strategic communication perspective, is that it doesn't necessarily convey the breadth of what Boko Haram is about. And therefore, people might just write off Boko Haram as stupid idiots that are against education. Although its platform is much more elaborate articulated than just saying we don't like to read books there's there's substance there uh, and even the top Nigerian religious scholars of Islam were debating Boko Haram back in the day and disagreeing with Boko Haram and critiquing Boko Haram because there was actually content to be critiqued on the ideological level now on the analytical level beyond strategic communication uh, the problem with using the word Boko Haram is that it just refers to all this sort of violence in Nigeria attributed to Islamist militants. Even Ansaru was called Boko Haram. And it doesn't help us understand the differences from the factions and how they may evolve in the future, like the analysis I just did about the way West Africa province might evolve and Shikau's faction might evolve. So, so this sort of broad-based term is not very helpful analytically, but if we can erase it for the time being, I would say that we have the West Africa province, which is one faction, which is led by Al-Barnawi, 
which we discussed. There's Shikau under Jazz, which we discussed. Then there's Mama Noor, who I mentioned, who did the private audio critiquing Shikau. He is loyal to al-Baghdadi, but I don't believe he is actually a member of West African province. He's sort of independently loyal to al-Baghdadi and a close ally of uh, Abu Musa al-Barnawi. And he's also likely secretly inclined toward AQ based on his own history with AQAM and al-Shabaab. So that's a third faction. And he, given his historic ties to international militancy, I would imagine him having a role in the foreign fighters from Nigeria, Senegal, and elsewhere who are now leaving Libya. And I think that's a really big card that he has, that he can play to AQ. So he's a third faction. And then you still have remnants of Ansaru, this AQAM project in Nigeria. But even they seem to be at least exploiting IS's resources because at least from the Nigerian army reports, Ansaru is sending fighters up to Libya to get training and to come back to Nigeria. So I don't see them being ideologically inclined toward IS, but somehow on the operational side, they are doing some type of exchange. That's according to Nigerian army reports. That's a fourth faction. A fifth faction might be related to Khaled al-Barnawi, not Abu Musa al-Barnawi. Khaled al-Barnawi is a former AQIM slash GSPC, which was the predecessor to AQIM militant, close to Bel Mokhtar, fought in Sudan, reportedly met bin Laden himself and pledged allegiance to bin Laden, uh, did some stuff with al-Shabaab. So he's basically an AQ freelancer, and he's been arrested, according to the Nigerian army reports in April 2016. But he seems to have been active in Kogi state, below Abuja, where he was arrested, just south of Abuja. And there's some smaller radical cells there. That's also where Ansaru operated because they had some relationship with Khaled al-Barnawi. And that could be a sort of new type of radical movement that's a little bit under the surface now that is somehow connected to these broader movements of West Africa province and Jazz. And I would consider that sort of a fifth faction in this broader Boko Haram umbrella. And we don't know much about them, but it's the type of thing that, from a counter-radicalization perspective, it's probably worth double the attention. I'd like to look at the Chibuk girls, and as you said at the starting of the talk, we recently saw a new video emerge featuring them. So let's discuss this video and some of the details within it. What's most uniquely interesting to me about the video is the logo that Jass uses. It's a very distinct Jass logo in Arabic calligraphy that was only introduced right before Jass, namely Shakao, made the pledge to al-Baghdadi in March 2015. And that logo was developed according to my close watching of the Twitter account that Jass had at that time in early 2015 by a group called Africa Media, which was an pro-IS media organization based in North Africa that probably used Arabic instead of the Latin letters in Hausa for the logo that Jass had formerly used because they're, they're Arabs themselves. So that means to me that the video is authentically jazz, and they're using templates from just before the pledge period of early 2015, and they're basically reviving what jazz was before the pledge. So that, that logo not only signified to me that it's an authentic video, which some people were asking, or at least authentically from jazz, but it also shows me a little bit about who are the people involved in making the video. Also, when I look at the voice of the interviewer of the Chippewa Girls from jazz, who's sort of uh, asking them questions about their lives as hostages now for over two years, it seems to be the same spokesman for Shakao that he's had since the day the girls were first kidnapped. So it shows to me that the girls have been with Shakao and the spokesman for two, more than two years, and they've actually like they've been more sedentary than people imagine, 
And that's also notable. Now, the propaganda from the spokesman was that some of the girls have been killed in airstrikes. Although the video shows an airplane, it doesn't actually show strikes. And the girls that the video shows having been killed in airstrikes is not that convincing that they were killed in airstrikes. To be frank, it looks like they might be just were killed by stabbing, or let's just say it's not conclusive how they were killed, or even if they're just acting in the video and just lying on the ground and not really dead. I'm just saying we can't really tell. But the video is notable because it does show 50 of the girls, and although there should be about 200 remaining, this is you know a fairly large number, and it shows that there's a decent type of logistics networks to keep the girls fed as they look thick, they don't look malnourished. One of them seemed to have a baby, so obviously a lot has happened personally, physically, emotionally to them in that time. But it shows that BH has this card, and it's also really relevant, as I mentioned, that right after Shikau became Jass again and left West Africa province, he released this video. Now, IS has a bunch of Yazidi uh, hostage hostages who are girls that they use as sex slaves, but IS doesn't show them in propaganda videos, even though it justifies their slavery. So I think that IS told Chikau, we're not going to use these girls in Chibok as propaganda in videos, although we, we praise your kidnapping of them. But now that Chikau is quote-unquote free, he is able to leverage them in negotiations because nobody's telling him how or not to feature them. And, and I think maybe he does need resources now that it's not going to be forthcoming from IS or AQ. And if he can get a deal for the girls, that'll be good for him. He's been incredibly patient, to be frank. It's been two and a half years with a lot of these girls who are wanted around the world and he hasn't made a deal and I think that at the same time the Nigerian president is probably reluctant to make a deal as much as he wants the girls free because what Jess may be asking for is all of its prisoners back to the battlefield who knows how many millions of dollars behind the table and other concessions maybe that the army doesn't infringe on certain gas territory and if that's the case it's almost uh, such a difficult equation for Nigeria because JASC uses its new resources to kidnap new girls, which it did last week. And then we go into a cycle of this conflict. So I think that the Nigerian president still wants to find them and free them, as risky as that is. And, and that maybe is what's keeping a deal from happening. And in the video, they're asking for the release of Boko Haram fighters that are in prison for the girls. And realistically, it will be interesting to see if the Nigerian government goes for this. I mean, personally seems not very realistic in my mind in your thoughts what do you think it's some it's very difficult when the Chibok when the Chibok kidnapping first happened in April 2014 I was on a news program with Alan Dershowitz of Harvard who made a point early on which I think is fairly valid today that they have stolen a lot of girls over the years and we still believe that they have the capability to steal a lot of girls. So the issue now is that if they were to make a deal for the release of a lot of prisoners for a lot of the Chibo girls or all of them, what would keep BH from not going and kidnapping 100 girls in a few weeks after that and then we having this same issue again and again? So maybe what Nigeria should try to do is make the insurgency very weak, and I don't think they're there yet, so that VH JAS, namely, can't kidnap girls in this way. And if you were to make a deal at that time, it would be 
more tenable than the way it is now, where BH could just kidnap a lot of other girls. But uh, as you mentioned, I mean, to trade all the hostages that BH, uh, all the prisoners that BH wants for the girls leads to a number of quandaries down the road. And it's the type of thing that ethicists, strategists, politicians can debate amongst themselves what priorities they want to balance. There's obviously huge emotional attachment uh, to the Chibok girls in particular, that it would be like a morale relief and a big weight off the shoulders of virtually all Nigerians. So, and but Shakao also knows that 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 he has that weighing on the president and the Nigerian citizenry, and he's using that to try to get a better deal for himself. So, I'm not providing a conclusive answer, but I'm trying to bring out some of the various military, political, and moral, and ethical, and strategic issues that arise from what we're dealing with with the Chibok hostage negotiations. And I know you have a time constraint, so I want to kind of get back to the bigger picture, looking at what has happened with the Boko Harams. We'll use more than one. What are we likely to see with both Boko Harams or all of them? Or why don't we just say the major players in the Boko Harams? That might make it a little bit easier for you. And bring us some concluding remarks. I would say that the issue of caliphacy, caliphate is a very, very strong desire of BH today, all of the factions, and it was even before this whole declaration of jihad by BH happened in 2010 by Shakao. And today, IS is the one that is giving them that pursuit of caliphate. I think tomorrow it will likely be AQ in the pursuit of the caliphate. And I think defining caliphacy, what it means to people, the Nigerian Muslim community is something that's important, as are some of these other terms like takfir and various interpretations. There have been a lot of efforts to counter BH's ideology from before 2010 even, and, and they still go on today. But BH is clearly able to leverage this desire for caliphacy and push enough fighters to cause mass devastation. And and so I think you know that that issue is going to continue to come up. Who's who's the one that can give them the best chance for the caliphate today? And that's where these people are going to uh, be pulled to. So so I think that this jihadist uh, crisis is going to outlast IS and probably move on to AQ and maybe some other entity down the road. Although AQ seems to have a long-term strategy and decent staying power to keep that jihadist desire for caliphate alive. Uh, so I think that'll be there. Uh, you know, currently we also have to look on the other side. You know, what is Nigeria able to do uh, when we look at the big picture? And we have a huge number of IDPs. The crisis in the Northeast is is quite severe. And what's happened under the current presidential administration is actually that I think that the military efforts have been more consistent. They've been strong. There's certainly issues where fighters on the ground uh, don't feel that they're resourced enough and they feel that they're in danger, especially when they come under BH attack. And that, that needs to be addressed from an anti-corruption standpoint so as to have the resources to make sure that the soldiers are uh, you know, well-fed, well-stocked, and so forth, uh, as well as the military planning to make sure that the logistics and supplies can get to the various soldiers. That's actually gotten better in, in the past year or so. Um, but that same type of uh, effort and consistency probably needs to also go towards the humanitarian crisis because as long as people are all over the place in Borno State and IDP camps, can't return home, angry at their neighbors, it's going to be hard to bring the long-term stability to Borno. That is need. 
needed. So I, d I think that we can keep looking at the BH trajectory of all these factions. We also need to look at the, the government trajectory. And I, I think the military effort has been better over the past year, as I said, but that also needs to extend to some of the more humanitarian efforts with the same vigor. And, and it needs to be consistent for well over the next five years, namely into the next presidential administration, who it will be, in order to finally turn back the tide of the BH insurgency. And then after about a decade, thinking more midterm, make BH become something of the past and then work towards a better future to end on a more optimistic note. And that is a perfect way to end because sometimes our shows don't end on an optimistic note. So it's always nice to lift the spirits of the listeners. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on the show, Jacob, and lending your expertise on this topic. And I'm sure with all of the interesting developments that are taking place, we will definitely have you on again to hear what else has happened in the up and coming future. And I just want to, for our listeners, apologize for any background noise. I think both Jacob and I are in office environments, so we have other people in the background <laughs> closing doors and so forth. So apologies. But once again, thank you so much for coming on the show, Jacob. Thanks. It was absolutely a pleasure. And it's been uh, more than two years, I think, since our last conversation. And uh, let's at least set a date for at least two years or less to reconvene and discuss how these issues are evolving. Sounds like a perfect plan. Thank you.